Isaiah 49 introduces a shift in the poet's focus. Before we really get into this, I just want to provide some background. The way we've been going about studying this set of texts, we've been looking at Isaiah 40 through 55. And the reasoning behind that is it seems as though Isaiah 1 through 39 is doing something a bit different. And then there's a shift in chapter 40 where it's almost a new context. Some people have argued that it's 150 years after that first set of texts that was looking towards destruction and exile. In Isaiah 40 through 55, the Israelites have already received punishment. They have received judgment. They have been removed from their land, which I stress every week is a huge, huge thing that has to do with their relationship with God. They're in a foreign land looking at all these rival gods that seem to have some power, questioning their relationship with God and doubting if he is still invested in them as a people. Throughout Isaiah 40 up to 48, we've seen this message from the poet be one of comfort, one of peace, one of God saying, I have a plan for you. I have love for you still, even though you're outside of the land and you've been seemingly judged for your sins. In the beginning of chapter 40, it says, your sins have been paid for. It's this message of of hope. But in the midst of that, the way that the people receive that message is through doubt and through skepticism and through jadedness, perhaps where the message that God is giving to them is falling upon deaf ears because what their circumstances look like do not match up with the message. And there's a shift in chapter 49 where we're going to be moving away from that in a, in a sense. In those first eight chapters, we've been talking about Jacob and Israel as a people, specifically their release and their rescue from oppression. God keeps saying, I'm sending someone to get you out of here. I'm sending someone to take you back into the land. I'm sending someone who's going to allow you to to remove yourselves from this oppressive state. And we've seen in that message, as I just mentioned, there's this doubt and disbelief that's kind of running under the surface there where the people can't quite grab a hold of the message. They can't quite accept grace which has a lot of resonances with us today. We can't quite accept (coughs) grace and forgiveness and mercy. And in this context, the people were were struggling with that as well. But there's a shift from Jacob Israel to Jerusalem Zion. In a sense, it's a shift to the abandoned city and to its ultimate restoration. So we're moving from Jacob Israel, the people group, and now God is focusing on Jerusalem, going back to the city that these people have never even seen. These people have no attachment to. But there's this message of hope embedded in the memories of your forefathers and where they used to worship and where God used to be active and where God used to have this vibrant relationship with his people. There's like little hints that they can go there and become a part of that too. There's a shift there from Jacob Israel to Jerusalem Zion, but also in this particular text, the one that I just read to you, there's a shift from Jacob Israel as servant to an individual representative of Israel as servant. I'm going to throw in some kind of heady, scholarly stuff tonight. But it's got payoff. It's got beautiful payoff. So stick with me here. But we're seeing a shift from Israel as a people, as God's servant, to this individual as God's servant. And we'll see how that plays out here in a minute. And the shift paves the way ultimately for Jesus. And in a sense, it paves the way for us too. Understand that we are not Israel and that our inclusion in this story was one of great surprise. And the way that Isaiah works this out in this particular text is is even more surprising. So before we get into the text, I want to kind of lay some groundwork in things that we've talked about in the past, a few months ago. Particularly, I want to look at the servant songs in Isaiah, and I want to do that by talking about this guy here, Bernard Doom. He was a historical critical scholar writing around the turn of the 19th and 20th century. 
And he wrote a commentary on Isaiah that was like a landmark commentary. And this work had a massive effect on how people read Isaiah as a book and also how they were reading the Bible altogether. Up to this point, people were kind of accepting the Bible at face value, allowing it to be God's word, allowing it to be, you know, set where it, it says it's set and people doing things that it says that they were doing. When he started reading this book, he saw things that other people weren't seeing. Uh, in particular, he was seeing those different authors of Isaiah in chapter 1 through 39 and 40 through 55 and then 56 through 66. He was seeing things from a critical lens because at this time, everyone was viewing things critically, skeptically. Among other things, he proposed the identification of what are called the four servant songs. We've already looked at one in chapter 42, and we're going to go back to that in a moment, but here we're coming into the second of the servant songs. And the reason why I'm talking about this is because there's differences between what's happening in chapter 42 and what is now happening in chapter 49. He believed that each of these servant songs did not belong in their context. It's almost as though they were written for something else. Somebody plucked them up and then pasted them into the Bible, much like this. So there's this scene in Pitch Perfect, right, where I guess acapella is all about the mashups these days where they take this song and that song and then they mash them up together. But there's this one really great scene. Yeah, I said that. I'll stand by it. There's this one really great scene in the movie <laughs> Pitch Perfect where Becca, I believe, is trying to incorporate new stuff into her little acapella group's repertoire, right? And what they're doing is they are singing Bruno Mars, Just the Way You Are. And what she wants to do is while they're doing that, she's going to take Nelly, some other song that he did, on top of that and take these two things that don't belong together and then paste them together. Some people see that as what's happening in the Bible. They're taking these things and then they're pasting them into the text. Like they're taking this old song, this hook from Nelly, and they're pasting it into Isaiah 49. Okay, that's a, that's a stretch. Nelly's not in the Bible. To, not, to my knowledge, I don't believe that he is. Maybe some lyrics, but you know, whatever. Um, Doom was wrong about separating these songs, but what he did was he allowed people to see the text in a different way, and he brought some sort of, he brought some emphasis to these servant songs, and people began to, to study them and think about who is this servant, and what is God doing through this servant, and for the last hundred or so years, everyone's been arguing about what's going on in these texts. But he was wrong about that, but he's, he's brought to our attention some important stuff about the servant songs. The first servant song was in Isaiah 42, 1 through 9, and it says, Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will bring justice to the nations. Jump down to verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the peoples and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. The servant of the Lord was going to do great things, bringing about restoration, reconciliation, redemption, rescue from exile. And this would even include the Gentiles, which was completely unheard of at this time. It begs the question, because in that text, it doesn't say who the servant is. It begs the question, who's the servant? Who's the servant? Thankfully, Isaiah has already filled this in for us before he launched into the servant song where he says, Israel, my servant, 
Jacob, the one whom I have chosen. So in this text, it's very clear that Israel is the servant. The bad news is, though, Israel doesn't do their job. They don't bring justice. They're not a light for the Gentiles. They don't open eyes. They don't free captives. They don't release those in darkness. So God says, Israel, you're my servant. Here's what you need to do. But they don't do it. This is in chapter 42, so for the next six or so chapters, we're just kind of waiting to see what's going to happen. God keeps saying, I love you, you are precious, you are honored, you're my servant, but they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And a lot of this has to do with the fact that there's still this residual doubt and skepticism and disbelief that any of this stuff could actually happen. I would even argue that they can't do this job because as we move on in Isaiah, in chapter 42, it says that they're deaf and they're blind. Almost as though the person that God is calling, or the people that God is calling, can't live up to, to what he's asking them to do. To be this witness, to be this servant, to be this agent of redemption. They can't do it. With this background, it kind of brings us into this text where we are tonight in Isaiah 49, particularly in verses 1 through 6. And something very interesting is happening here that will have a lot to do with us in a moment. And I have, I think, three points that I want to pull out from, from these verses. The first one is, is this servant song talking about a different servant, or are we still talking about Israel as a people? If we just dip into this text here, you can see there's a difference between how Isaiah 42 talks about the servant and how Isaiah 49 talks about the servant. In Isaiah 42, it's he will do this. God has anointed him to do that. It's all in the third person, like saying this person over here is going to do it. In this text, the one who's writing it or the one who's speaking it is saying, I, before I was born, the Lord called me from my mother's womb. He has spoken my name. He has made my mouth like a sharpened sword. Drop down to verse three. He has said to me, you are my servant. It seems as though he's, he's going beyond corporate communal Israel to this one person. Perhaps the poet here in Isaiah 40 through 55 as though that person has a job to do in announcing redemption. So we see this, this movement from Israel as a people to this one person who will stand in the gap and represent Israel to do this job that they couldn't do. Note there's a connection here in the way that this text is talking about the author. It says, before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. There's a connection there with Jeremiah, another prophet who owns this sort of language where he says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. We usually see these sorts of texts um, surrounding the issue of pro-life, and that's fine, but I think that there's something else going on here too, where in Isaiah 49, it's that person that has been set apart, and in Jeremiah, it's that person that has been set apart. These two individuals are called to do a very specific job, and we don't need to miss that by making it so general that it applies to everyone. Now, what I'm not trying to do is to make us less special or to make that not appropriate for a pro-life discussion. I don't believe that's the case. But what I am trying to do is set this in its, in its context where it's saying Jeremiah was doing something that the rest of Israel wasn't doing. Jeremiah was the representative of all of the people showing them what it looks like to be Israel. In Isaiah 49, the poet is the example of what it looks like to be Israel. 
in a way that was very different from everyone else. He goes on to say what the job of the poet is. He said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will display my splendor. God is going to work through this individual to bring about change, to bring about salvation, to bring about rescue in a way that the people couldn't have imagined, in a way that people couldn't have accomplished. The servant, whoever it is, was created for this to display God's splendor, and I would even go a step farther, to do what Israel as a community could not do. It was this individual that was going to become the representative of the people to fulfill what it is that God had called them to do that as a people they couldn't do because they were still laced with doubt and skepticism and questions. Brings me to this idea of, of calling. If we're going to talk about Jeremiah and this, this guy in Isaiah 49 as being specifically set apart to do specific tasks, it makes me really wonder about us as a people and what it is that we have been called to do. Especially for a lot of you folks in college, this is the time when you're wondering, what am I going to do with my life? What is it going to look like? And usually we reduce that to vocation where we say, I could be a teacher, or I could be a nurse, or I could be a doctor, or I could be a dentist. You're concerned about what it is that you're called to do, and sometimes in the midst of that calling, we forget that we're actually called to be God's children. We're called to, to love God and enjoy him forever. We're called to share the gospel. We're called to be light. We're called to be salt. We're called to be people that stand in the gaps. We're called to be, to be people that see brokenness and disappointment and hurt and meet the needs. For the college students in the room, and goodness, for the adults as well that are wondering about calling, don't forget the simple fact of God setting you apart to be you in a very unique and special way to reach people that no one else can reach. I wish that my preaching and my example and my whatever else could just reach the masses, but it can't. Some of you have an audience with people that I will never have an audience with. That's calling. That's you being set apart from the very foundations of the universe where God says, this person right here is going to be so unique and so special where they can reach this people that nobody else can reach. Don't be crippled by doubt and fear and skepticism so that you don't allow yourself to do what you're called to do. And if you're sitting there thinking, I'm not special, there's nothing special about me, I believe you're wrong. We did this thing a couple days ago at Spiritual Emphasis Days where we kind of had this little mini talent show and people came up and said, my gift is singing, hallelujah, and they would sing stuff and sometimes it was great and sometimes it was less than great. Uh, other people would come up and say, my gift is juggling, and they would juggle or whatever. I mean, people would do different things to show like what their gifting was. And I talked to this one guy afterwards, and he said, you know, I guess my gift is just being okay at everything because there's not one thing that I'm good at. And I could kind of like relate to that because I don't really feel like there's a lot that I'm really good at. Uh, but I think we both, in the midst of our pity parties, were missing the bigger issue there, the bigger calling to be sons and daughters of the Most High God. That, folks, transcends juggling and even singing and all the other little things that we can do or can't do. The second point is the servant's response to this. So God is saying, you're my guy. You're my guy. I've set you apart even from before you were in your mother's womb. I've set you apart. And he responds in this way. 
I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Woe is me. You know, it's like God says, this is who you are called to be. And the, the poet comes back and says, yeah, but I try to do stuff and it doesn't really work out. I've labored in vain. There's no results for what I'm doing. It's all this stuff. But what's interesting is here, he doesn't leave it at that as Israel, corporate Israel has. He goes beyond it and says, yet what is due me, and this is an unfortunate translation in the NIV because this is the cause that Israel has been worried about since chapter 40. In Isaiah 40, I believe it's verse 27, they say, they're complaining, God does not care about my cause, my mishpat, my justice. He's disregarded it. But the poet comes back to do and say things that Israel as a community couldn't do and say. He says, my mishpat, my cause, my justice is in your hand and my reward is with God. So he takes this doubt, but then he moves beyond it from lament to praise where they're like protesting. I'm nothing. I can't juggle. I can't sing. My whole life is a mess. But then he goes over to say, yet I will praise you. Yet I will trust you. My cause, my mishpat, the justice of my life is in your hand and my reward is with you. Even though I can't juggle too good, it's with you. You know what I mean? Like he's, he's bringing these two things together. He's moving from doubt to trust. I'm the type of guy that's very negative. I'm the type of guy that's very skeptical. I'm the type of guy that asks a lot of questions and sort of likes it when there's no answers. I like to hang out in the world of doubt. But what we learn from the Bible oftentimes is doubt's fine and good and it pushes you, but usually they want you to take one more step into yet I will trust you. I can't really figure out this whole thing about atonement, yet will I trust you. I can't really figure out what's going on in Genesis 1 through 3, yet will I trust you. I can't really figure out why my family member is still battling this disease, yet I will trust you. We oftentimes just hang out in the doubt and throw all these bombs at God and say, you didn't do this, you didn't do that, you can't do this, you won't do that. But then take one more step and say, but I'm still going to trust you because my cause and my justice is in your hands. I can't go anywhere else. Every reward that's for me is with you. So doubt all you want, but I hope that it's tied in some way to trust and praise and hopefulness. I understand that some of you just aren't there. Some of you can't move from doubt to trust. I get that. My prayer is that people stand in the gaps with you and fight with you through that moment so you can ultimately get to a place of trust. Not necessarily a place of understanding, but a place of trust where you understand that everything about you and your cause and your justice has not been something that God has disregarded, but it's in the very palm of his hand. Third thing, what is this servant supposed to do? So I'm trying to make the argument that this servant here in this text is one individual. It's whittled down from this whole community to one individual. The individual struggles with doubt but is rooted in trust. Now what's the servant supposed to do? In verse 5 it says, the servant is supposed to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. He's supposed to bring Israel back to the land. Yeah, because remember, they're in Babylon. He's supposed to take them back to Jerusalem, but it goes beyond that. It's this call that the, the poet or the servant is supposed to bring Israel back to God. 
Remember, they're in exile and the whole story of their life at this point is doubt and distrust. And the poet is one who's supposed to bring them back to Yahweh. It says this in 44, 22, starting in verse 21 actually. Remember these things, Jacob, for you, Israel, are my servant. There's that servant language again. I have made you and you are my servant, Israel. I will not forget you. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. All the junk that caused you to be here, I've taken care of it. Come back to me. Yeah, go back to Jerusalem, to the land, because that's important, but come back to me. Some of us, like, spatially, you're here. You walked through the doors, which for some of you might have been a huge battle. But I think the call goes beyond that to return to me. Return to God. Return to the one who loves you with a never-ending love. Return to me because I have forgiven you. I've swept away your sins. Return to God. I think for some of us, that's the call. I don't know where you're at, but I know some of us, we're not here. As far as our hearts, they're very, they're distant. There's callousness, there's jadedness. And the poet is saying, I want to bring Israel back to you. Beyond this, the task is not just to bring Israel and Jacob back to Yahweh, but it goes beyond this. And this is where this gets interesting for us as a people. It is too small a thing. And this is a really weird tension where God's saying, here's your task, go get Israel and go get Jacob and bring them back. And in the very next verse, he's like, wait a second, that's too small of a thing. Let's get a little bit broader with this. It's too small of a thing for you to be my servant and to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel that I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles. Same language as in verse 42 or chapter 42. I will make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. It's not just about Israel anymore. It's not just about the people that have been taken out of the land. It's about all the people that they were living with in Babylon. Their job is to be so transformed by the love of God that people can't help but see them. And when I say that, it makes me cringe. It probably makes you cringe too. Because I remember, I'm the negative, skeptical doubter. When I walk in Walmart, my, the love that I have for Jesus is not emanating from me so much that people are like, praise Jesus, I need to give my heart to the Lord because this young servant's life is so exemplary and glowing and beaming. I'm usually like, I'm just here to get some Sour Patch Kids. Get out of my way. You're like, you need to take your kid outside and deal with that. You know, like typical Walmart stuff. Don't misunderstand me where I say that we would be like these beacons of hope from just walking down the street. There's this really bad saying in the Christian church that says, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. For me, that is impossible because <laughs> this doesn't happen. So the only way people are going to know that I love Jesus is if I say, I love Jesus. Sorry, I'm so rude. Give me the Sour Patch Kids. <laughs> so don't misunderstand me where I'm saying it's like emanating from you. I think it's more about being honest with the relationships that you have Using the time where you're sitting across the table from somebody having coffee where you say something deeper than, how was your day? Some weather we're having, isn't it? How's your fantasy team doing? You know what I mean? Like stuff like that. If you could take it to another level and incorporate gospel and Christ and life and redemption and hope, that's being a light. 
Also, don't misunderstand me that I'm trying to ask you to go do like this crazy guerrilla evangelism with people and just kind of bombard them with, what do you think about Jesus? Where are you going to go when you die? That's not what I mean. It's just, it's being responsible with the relationships that you have and building really good ones so that when people understand and know that you serve Christ, they won't say, what? That guy? <laughs> you know what I mean? Where it's like, you're honest and you're a light to the Gentiles and you're proclaiming and making known that the salvation of God reaches the ends of the earth where we are. So this is how I want to tie this up. When we look at this text, there should be a first reading where we look for the historical context of what Isaiah, the poet, is talking about. Remember, I'm, I'm setting it in chapters 40 through 55, 150 years after exile. Like, they're so entrenched in this other culture and this message of hope keeps coming up, but we also see that Israel is obstinate and they can't live up to their end of the bargain where God says, I want you to do it. You be the servant. You be the one that brings about justice and is a light to the Gentiles, okay? There's that first reading there, which must, for Christians, go into this beautiful second reading. Lord of the Rings came out when I was in college. I didn't read the books because they're massive and they have other languages in them that aren't real, <laughs> okay? So I was very excited when the movies came out, and I remember I was sitting in the theater with one of my friends from college, and we're getting ready to start the film, and if anybody doesn't know how this ends, spoiler alert, you can leave the room. There should be like a statute of limitations on these sorts of things, as I often say, but here it is. We're sitting there, like first bite of popcorn, she leans over and says, Frodo can't throw the ring into the fires of Mordor. I was like, what? <laughs> but that's the very end of the movie, right? Like, he can't do it. The task that he's entrusted with, he can't do it. And she just ruined it for me. So the whole time I'm watching that first film and the second film and then up to the third film with like the last 10 minutes where that actually happens, I'm seeing the whole story from that one conversation where she says, Frodo can't throw the ring into the fires of Mordor. Like a jerk. What a jerk thing to do. As I'm watching these movies and seeing them unfold, like that's in the back of my mind. As Christians, here's the tie, this is going to be good. The, the end of the story, death and resurrection of Jesus, permeates scripture. You can't read this bit in Isaiah and hear servant language without thinking about Jesus. So in this context, it's no longer corporate Israel. It's just one person, the one who's becoming the representative of all the people. You can't hear me talk about that as a Christian without thinking about Jesus, the representative of all of humanity, doing what we screwed up. Jesus is the servant. Jesus is the representative. Jesus does what we could not do, and through him, salvation reaches the ends of the earth. We can do our job at Walmart or when we're having coffee, but the reason why we're talking about salvation is because of that guy, because he was the true representative of all of humanity, and he actually lived up to it. I hope that when we look at Isaiah, this, it's all great to talk about Bernard Doom. I love talking about Bernard Doom in church, but I could see the glaze over your eyes when that came up, so I'll try to edit that next time. But if that gets us to Jesus, I say great. So when we look at Old Testament and hear servant songs, we can't not see Jesus. And I would argue that even in the very fabric of our being, we should not be able, double negative, 
to not see Jesus. In our conversations, we should not be able to not include him. In the choices that we make, we should not be able to avoid him. Like, he should be so indwelling in us that when we think about redemption and reconciliation and hope, it's just all over it. The way that this chapter ends up, I think, is, is beautiful. And I want to read some of these verses and, and ask you to see Jesus in them again. Verse 8, and this is chapter 49. In the time of my favor, I will answer you, and in the time of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people, to restore the land, to reassign its desolate inheritances, and say to the captives, come out, and to those in darkness, be free. This is the same language of Isaiah 42 that Israel could not accomplish. And this is the same language, I would argue, that this person in Isaiah 49 cannot accomplish. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, says, captives, you're free. People in the darkness of the dungeons, you're out. Come into light. Come into hope. Come into life. I don't know where you're at this evening. I don't know what it is you have going on in your lives, in your hearts, in your spirits, but I hope that you see Jesus. And I hope that whatever walls we've built up can begin, maybe not be completely obliterated tonight, but we can begin chipping away as we understand He's invested in you. He cares about you. He's fought for you. And he's won for you. And it might be time that we move from doubt and skepticism and negativity into, I know that everything that I need is in the palm of your hand.